our theme this year is, is to uh, guard the faith. And our goal is to provide for you encouraging, uh, exhortative, and expositional preaching that will motivate you through your studies. And, and if you don't study hard, there will be no faith to guard. And I'll get to that here and there in this, in this message. But, but our goal is, as professors and those we invite in to, to preach in our chapel is to really focus in on this today. And in this semester, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> and my goal today is to kind of hit the, uh, the main theme of our chapel series and, and uh, lay out a course for that. But to really encourage us with this command that we're, we're given here in 1 Timothy. Paul says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we're going to skip down and focus on verses 18 through 20 today. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping or guarding faith, and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. The charge to faithful ministry, the charge to guard the faith, is a charge that we must take up if we're to be faithful to our God. One of the most well-known preachers of the English Reformation was a man named Hugh Latimer. Latimer was born in England in 1490. His father was a farmer. He sent him off to Cambridge. And, and I, I resonate with that. My dad was a toolmaker. He was a blue-collar worker. My mom dropped out of high school. And, and they sent me to Bob Jones many years ago, uh, back in the 80s. Can you believe that? 1989, sent me off to Bob Jones. And, and, uh, and God has seen fit to allow me the stewardship of, of a very good education. Latimer was sent to Cambridge for his education. He graduated in 1510 with a BA and 1514 with an MA. Their BAs and MAs were a little further along than ours, but nonetheless, they were still important. But before the latter date, he had taken holy orders in the church. And while a student, he was not una, unaccustomed to making cheer and being merry, usually with a little inebriation involved. But at the same time, he was also a very careful observer of the rites of his faith, and he became as they called him an obstinate papist in England. So keen was his opposition to the new learning or the Reformation teachings that were starting to spread around Europe that, that he would give oration, and on occasion he would, he would uh, devote himself to preaching against it. Uh, when he was ordained, he actually gave a, a treatise against the teachings of Melanchthon, who was um, Martin Luther's right-hand man in, in Germany. It was this sermon that determined his good friend Thomas Bilney to go and sit down with him in his study. And he said, listen, you need to hear my confession of faith. Latimer listened to him. And from that point on, he began to smell the word of God. And he forsook his school doctors and he forsook his papistry and followed Christ. Uh, soon his teaching and his preaching became to came to exercise an influence on learned people and unlearned people alike. He had a vivid and sharp preaching style. 
Uh, he decried many of the preachers of his day. He called them, he said they were loitering, loitering or loitering as preachers. And since they began doing that, preaching has come down. He said preachers would hawk or they would hunt or they would card or they would dice. He accused them of pampering their paunches, munching in their mangers and mulling in their gay manners and mansions. He had a very sharp tongue in opposition to the modern preaching of his day. On one occasion, because of his popularity, he was called to preach before King Henry VIII. And true to style, he preached a message of offense. He offended the king. Well, King Henry commanded him to come and preach again the next Sunday and to make a public apology for his preaching. And Ladder began the following week with this introduction. And I updated it to give us modern English. He said, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you are today to speak? Well, to the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take your life if you offend. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. But then, consider well, Hugh, do you not know from where you come, upon whose message you are sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all-present, who beholds all your ways, and who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. And so Latimer preached the same message he preached the week before. He was steadfast for the truth. He fought the good fight. He eventually took a stand for his faith that led to him being enclosed in flames and burned at the stake under Queen Mary for his commitment to the truth. How strong are you committed to standing for the truth? Do you have the heart of Latimer? Do you have the heart of the Reformers? Do you have the heart of Paul? Do you have the heart of Timothy? Are you ready to, if we're required to, give your life to guard the faith? Many have gone before us and done that, and many are still to go before us, Lord, if the Lord tarries and do that. How strongly are you committed to guarding the faith? Well, Paul wrote this epistle to Timothy, and sorry, I missed my... My picture, oh, I got it, of Latimer. Paul wrote this epistle to Timothy to encourage and command him to guard the faith. He gives him a reassuring greeting, and I think this is a fitting greeting to think about, to meditate on even today, the first day of classes. How many of you have been to class already? Okay, a lot of you. How many of you still have to go to your first class? Okay, you're going to need this reassurance, trust me. You're going to need this reassuring greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior, of Christ Jesus, who has our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, again, from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul invokes divine authority. He says, as an apostle of Christ, the sent one of Christ, the representative of Christ, as the church is established, he is bringing a command from God and from Christ Jesus and giving it and entrusting it to Timothy. There is divine authority involved. And, and there's some debate about what, is, what does he mean by the commandments and what does he mean when he says in verse 18, this command, and some of that is contained within chapter 1, which we'll hear uh, next week more about from Dr. Cushman, and, and, and we'll be encouraged by that. But I think this command is rooted deeper than that. I think the command is rooted in the command of Jesus Christ to go into all the world and to make disciples, to establish churches, to baptize people, gather them into local bodies, and teach them to observe all things to both promote the gospel and protect the purity of what God had granted to them 
in the scriptures. This is involved in this command. This is invoked within the command as Paul gives it to Timothy. There is divine authority straight from God through Christ, empowered by the Spirit, given in the Word, and granted to us. The divine persons are engaged. I won't spend much time here, but, but you see, according to God our Savior, Christ Jesus, who is our hope, and then in verse 2, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, obviously the Spirit is involved in, in giving the Scripture and granting the grace, mercy, and peace. And so we see this being very Trinitarian. Divine persons are engaged in what we're called to do in guarding the faith. So it's not just going to class and learning doctrine and taking tests and, and, and learning Greek and Hebrew. It's God is giving you a stewardship and you are responsible for it. But he's involved in that. He's involved in it. You're going in the strength that he provides. Each day, each class, each test, each quiz, each ministry opportunity, the divine trinity is engaged in that. And divine intervention is experienced and expected. I just love this. Grace, mercy, and peace. And again, a sigh of relief. We need God's grace, don't we? We need him to strengthen us. We need him to empower us. We need the grace gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we can accomplish our ministry. We need God's grace. And certainly, Timothy knew he needed this. He needed God's mercy. If you feel you're a powerful preacher or you are an effective or the most effective counselor or if you feel no weakness, you're ready to roll, um, this isn't really for you. But for the rest of us who feel the weight of the responsibility to guard the faith, who feel the weight of the responsibility to prepare to do that in seminary, we feel the weight of our own failures. Feel the guilt of our own failures. The struggle against sin that we engage in on a daily basis. We need that mercy. It's a reassuring gift. We need mercy. And peace is really the experience that comes from engaging in the process of receiving God's grace and, and, and being thankful for God's mercy. Peace comes, like Paul says in, in Philippians 4. It's a peace that surpasses all knowledge or understanding. It guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And it enables us to look at this almost impossible task of guarding the faith, of fighting the good fight in our own strength and saying, no, you don't have to do it in your own strength. You can do it in the strength that I provide, and I will give you the ability to do this. You can rest in my goodness and in my sovereignty and in my plan for your life. Well, there's a lot of peace there, isn't there? So listen, as you encounter the semester, I want to tell you, men and women, uh, there's a lot of anxiety that enters in. There's a lot of failures that comes out. But God will give you grace and mercy, and he'll give you peace. It's a, it's a reassuring greeting, and I just wanted to spend just a few minutes talking about that because that is vital, vitally important. Well, let's move on to the trust that we have been given. Really, the trust that's the, the essence of, of the charge and the theme that we have in, in this book of 1 Timothy, Paul's charge to young ministers. And, and I want to I say, you might have especially you ladies, you might have said, okay, we're talking about 1 Timothy. Isn't that a pastoral epistle? It's just written to the guys that are in charge of the churches. And, and that's, a, that's a valid question. It's a good question to ask. And I think sometimes by us calling Timothy and Titus the pastoral epistles, we, we, we kind of undercut them a little bit because they're really 
They're really directed at pastors, to Timothy and Titus, as they establish churches. They give them guides for, for doctrine and for, for conduct within the churches. They're, they're for all of us. These epistles are for all of us. And while there will be primary charges for pastors, there will be charges that affect all of us within the church. And so please understand that. We've all been given a trust to, to defend and display the gospel and to guard the faith because we are, we are the church. We are the church. The trust we have been given. Look at verse 18. Paul says, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. This is a command that comes from God. It comes from God directly. He said, this command, I've already touched on that in the introduction and, and, and here again in this verse. It's something that Christ commanded us to do to establish the church. It's something God commanded Paul to do as he established the church among the Gentiles. And now Paul has entrusted this to Timothy as he leads and helps establish the churches in Ephesus where he is ministering. Paul was appointed an apostle by the command of God, and he urged Timothy to deal with the things there in the churches of Ephesus, which we'll talk about next week in chapel. Some people ask about, they wonder about apostolic succession. Is this Paul passing on some kind of succession to, to Timothy? No, the apostolic succession, if we see it anywhere in Scripture, it's a succession of responsibility to maintain and establish the purity of the church and its doctrine. That's where the succession takes place. We are all in each generation responsible to guard the purity of doctrine and to guide establishment of churches and this is why paul says this command i entrust to you it's a word that has to do with entrusting something to someone that has great value to entrust it to their care it's a word paul used for his own soul in second timothy 1 12 he says i know whom i believed i'm convinced that he is able to guard what i have entrusted to him until this day and so paul doesn't do this with strings attached he he lays the burden and responsibility upon Timothy. He gives it to him. And because we have the scripture here, it's given to us as well. God has entrusted us with the responsibility. It concerns God greatly. Paul says, I entrust it to you. The, chain, the charge there was the command to promote sound doctrine by the prohibiting of false teachers and their doctrines. Paul, again, he repeats this command in 2 Timothy 1. He says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. It's a trust that concerns others, especially our forebears greatly. Paul says, he says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. He had already called Timothy his true child in the faith. He had discipled Timothy. Some say maybe Timothy came to faith under Paul's preaching, though he was taught from a child to know the Holy Scriptures. It concerned Paul that Timothy take up the mantle of guarding the faith. And he begins with words of affection, my true child, my son. He has affection and relationship, but also trust to the generation coming behind them, that they will guard the faith just as he was commanded to do. And we have that command as well. There are people sitting here, and I'll, I'll just pause here just for a second, but, but every generation of seminary students comes with some bit of suspicion from an older generation. Okay? Will they really take serious the responsibility to guard the faith? Will they study hard enough to know it well enough to know what there is to guard? And Paul didn't hesitate to entrust this task to Timothy. And we don't hesitate to entrust this task to you. And so God will help us to fulfill this charge. And it's something God gives us 
four. It's a trust which God gifts us for keeping. He, Paul just simply says to Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. And, and we, we see more talked about this, talking about this in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, when Paul says, don't neglect the gift that is in you, which was, was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The elders recognized the giftedness for ministry that Timothy had. They laid their hands upon him. They, they we would say, ordained him or commissioned him for ministry. There was some prophetic utterances involved because this church was being established then. And Paul wants to encourage Timothy that God is giving him the ability to do this great task that he is charged to do. It's also a trust with, which comes with great responsibility. Uh, Spider-Man was told what? With great power comes great responsibility, right? And he took that to heart. This is even greater. It's a trust which we are responsible to keep that by them. And the overall tenor of this whole section, this whole phrase, is that God is entrusting to Paul a task that he entrusts to Timothy. He's passing it down. And God is gifting him to carry it out. It's a great responsibility. And he says that by them, that by following the commands, by following the prophecies, by following the scriptures, Timothy would be enabled to do this. Thus, Timothy was exercising his gifts as a young pastor and minister, a teacher and administrator, to fulfill the responsibility given to him by the apostle that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father himself. There is a great deal of responsibility. I want to encourage you with this truth. Timothy had weaknesses. Timothy had obstacles. He had opposition doctrinally. He had opposition generationally. Paul had to tell him, don't let anyone despise your youth. But he had the ability to have a settled confidence that God had gifted him and given him the opportunity to do what he had called him to do. And I want to encourage each one of you, God will gift you to do what he has called you to do. He will enable you to accomplish the tasks to which he has called you. There's something to be said for a settled confidence in the gifting grace of God. Not a confidence in your own strength or in your own power, but in what God has gifted you and called you to do. So go forward this semester with the confidence that God will give you the ability to do what he's called you to do. Timothy had that confidence. He took this responsibility. Later, the failure to accomplish this is called shipwreck. We don't want that, do we? The trust we've been given. Part of this trust is a stand that we must make. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight. Keep faith in a good conscience. This is a stand we must make. The manner of our stand is a fight. You guys like to fight? I hope we don't really like to fight. You know, you think through this, of fighting the good fight, and then you look at the qualifications for ministry, and you're not supposed to be pugnacious. So how do we reconcile these things? Well, there is a way to reconcile it. Gordon Fee says of the word fight here, it's a military metaphor in contrast to often used athletic metaphors Paul uses. He regularly uses a military metaphor in context, especially where the struggle is against opponents of the gospel or against spiritual forces. So he's not saying be pugnacious. Don't pick a fight everywhere there is one. But when it comes to something that's worth fighting for, then do it. Do it. Timothy's fight here is against false teachers. It's against the very opposers of the gospel itself. And so he better be ready to fight. Charles Spurgeon says, some say never get into religious controversies. I would interpret that to mean 
Be a Christian soldier, but let your sword rust in its scabbard. Sneak into heaven like a coward. No, such advice I cannot endorse. If God has called you by the truth, then maintain the truth which has been the means of your salvation. We're not to be pugnacious, always contending for every crotchet or whim or perverse idea of our own. But wherein we have learned the truth, we are not tamely to see that standard torn down which our fathers upheld at the peril of their blood. If you guys lose the faith in your generation, shame on you. Shame on you. Wield the sword. Spurgeon goes on to say, This is an age which the truth must be maintained zealously, vehemently, and continuously. Playing fast and loose with the truth is the sure mark of the children of wrath. But to hold fast the very form of it, as Paul tells Timothy to do, is one of the duties of the heirs of heaven. We are called to fight. Why such strong words? And that's because of what is at stake. What is really at stake? I will say this, the souls of people is at stake. The souls of people are at stake. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, these are people among whom Timothy is ministering in Acts 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, be on guard, guard the faith, because the people that are opponents to the faith will ravage the flock. People's souls are at stake. Timothy's already dealing with us in the rest of chapter 1. The purity of our churches is at stake. The charge to maintain doctrinal purity in the church is seen in all its seriousness when Paul calls the church in 1 Timothy 3.15 the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. If the church falls, the truth is gone. And we must make sure the church rises, like we so effectively sang earlier. Again, the Ephesians had teachers who were preaching a wrong view of the law. They were undermining the gospel itself. They were leading people astray. They were making applications of the law, which was a means of knowing Christ and replacing truth with falsehood. This is what it means to, to make a good fight, to fight the noble fight. This is the war for the faith. How do you know? Maybe you're going to ask, how do I know if I'm being just argumentative? I'm being pugnacious or if I'm really fighting the fight of faith. And, and certainly, what are you fighting about? That's one way to know. Is it a gospel issue? Is it something that is, in essence, essential issue to the faith? But I want to say, just from your experience, how can I self-discern? How can I be aware of whether or not I'm just pugnacious, just, just argumentative, or if I'm fighting for the truth? And I ask you this. When you do so, do you just like to hear yourself fight? Do you like to hear the arguments you make? What's your concern for the person you're talking to? Or, I think more properly, when you do it, do you feel the weight of responsibility for what you're doing? Do you feel the need to depend on God wholly for doing what you're doing? Do you feel what is really at stake? It's not your opinion. It's not the opinion of others of you. It's really their relationship with the Lord that's at stake. Just keep that in mind. And that's, that's been helpful to me to, to remember because it's so easy to, so easy to get into side hallway, hallway arguments in seminary. So easy. 
And those, are, those have their, their place and their point. But, but fight for the faith. The means of our stand. Well, we're told to, to keep the faith or guard the faith and a good conscience. The phrase, though brief, keeping faith is comprehensive in helping us understand why we are fighting as pastors or as parishioners and what we're fighting for. How do we go about day by day fighting the fight or preparing to fight for truth when errors and falsehoods arise? Well, John Stott says there's an objective sense to this and a subjective sense to this. And the objective sense is what you're going to be focusing on here for the next year or the next two years or the next six years or however long you're going to be in seminary. You want to keep the faith. That means you must objectively hold to the faith, the truth of God's word, to right doctrine, to right teaching. Some say, well, this doesn't have the article. It's just holding on to faith, you know, having faith. you got to have faith, right? Or in the Polar Express, I believe. Man, if I just, I believe. You hear the bell ring, right? I love the sentiment of it. We watch it every year. That's not what true faith is about. Faith is only as good as its object. It's only as good as what you're holding on to. And so holding on to faith doesn't just mean a general feeling of faith. It means holding on to the faith that's given to us. It's entrusted to us. That's the context. I feel confident this is referring to the objective body of truth delivered to the church that it is to defend and to display. And this requires, this objective guarding of the faith requires a solid grasp of the content of the scripture. Okay, that's a, that's a dust statement. That's a simple statement. But don't neglect knowing what the Bible says. So many errors would, would be avoided if we would just read the Bible. A lot of my counseling in the last seven years in the student care office has been encouraged by getting people to read the Bible, and they discover things for themselves that mean something to them because the Spirit's involved in that. We got a lot of people that come into Bob Jones, they kind of assume the faith. They assume they know what the Bible says, but they don't just really dig in and read it. And once they start doing that, they start seeing what a treasure it is. Know the truth. Kent Hughes says, evangelical ignorance is a fact. Most Christians cannot name the Ten Commandments. I'd say most professing Christians cannot name the Ten Commandments. Many cannot even name five of them. Many don't even know where they are. If we're to love God as we ought, we must know the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, just to name a few. But our knowledge must not come from textbook dogmatics alone, but from the Scripture itself. Know the Word. And so Paul urges Timothy to gain his nourishment from the Word. In chapter 4, he says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Constantly, what? Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you've been following. Constantly nourished on the word. Be in the word regularly, both outside of class and inside of class. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And the second means of doing this is by guarding your conscience. Paul puts together knowing the word fighting the good fight by keeping the faith and fighting the good fight by having a good conscience. These two things go together. Keeping a good conscience was important. It was vitally important to Paul. He urges it as one of the primary goals of his instruction. In verse 5, he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Keeping a good conscience is vital. It's a qualification for deacons. They had to hold to the mystery of the faith with a, what, clear conscience. 2 Timothy 1.3, Paul says, he thanks God that he serves him as his forebears did with a clear conscience. 
Acts 23.1, Paul stood before the Sanhedrin, and he says, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God. Before Felix, he says, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. Keeping a good conscience, that's our internal rational capacity to reconcile what God's truth says with what we're living. Being consistent through what we believe to how we behave. Our doctrine coming out in our duty, right? The church believing this, but also being pure as they express it in their local congregations. The conscience has to go along with the truth of Scripture. Conscience is God-given. It's part of God's common grace to everyone, but in, in the believer, it's enlivened. And it's affected by the Spirit and the Word. The conscience is a witness to something. It's not its own authority. It's a witness to what the truth is. It responds to the evidence that exists in the Scripture and forms that into value systems and methods of discernment to make decisions about what we do. It is therefore a servant of the truth. And so maintain a good conscience. One writer said, author said, a guy named John Calvin, said a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. It's vital that we see the power of coupling, fighting for faith with maintaining a good conscience. Bad conscience, sometimes you'll see this. You'll see people start to compromise in their own standards and their own behaviors. And it leads later on to heresies in their doctrine. Sometimes we say, well, he believes the right things, but he doesn't really do the right things. And there really is no distinction there. If you're not doing the right things, you're not believing the right things. We have to maintain good doctrine and a good conscience. Kent Hughes says again, when morals slip, doctrine ebbs, and the fight is soon lost. Conscience disobedience will kill our spiritual life. Sinning against our conscience is truly, inwardly, sinning against what we are in our minds, at least, convinced is right. We do this, and then it's an experience which helps us surrender what it really is right in other areas of our life, including our doctrine. And so be careful, students, throughout your studies, not to just hold on to the objective truth, but to train your consciences to follow what it says. Make the decisions that are based upon your doctrine. When in doubt, don't is a very good call quote from our founder, Bob Jones Sr., right? If you're doubtful, search the scriptures until you feel it's right. Do what God calls you to do. And I'll finally end with this, the consequences of failure. And this is a sad point that he ends with, but he does that to motivate Timothy to keep the faith. The consequences of failure is shipwrecked. Shipwrecked faith. Shipwrecked churches. Shipwrecked pastors and family. He says, Hymenaeus and Alexander... I've handed them over to Satan. That is, I think, disciplined them from the church. Handed them over to Satan because of their false doctrine so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Don't end this semester with a shipwrecked faith. Please, please, please don't end your ministry with a shipwrecked church or a shipwrecked family. And the way you avoid that is back it up. Guard the faith. Hold on to it. Maintain a good conscience. Take the commands seriously. Trust God completely. He will give you the grace to do this. Guard the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for this charge. God, we, in some ways, in our flesh, we hesitate to thank you for the responsibility. 
because it's great, it's immense. But on reflection and what you promise us in your word, you give us the ability to take this responsibility and fulfill it. God, I pray for each, each man and woman here. I, we have different, different areas of responsibility right now, but we're all part of the church, and so we have the overall responsibility that is the same. But God, I particularly want you to work by your spirit in our conscience. Would help us to see areas where we're, we're slipping from what we believe by how we behave. And help us be reassured by what your word teaches that, that we can live out what we believe. And overall, God, I pray that this semester that, that you would bless the chapel messages, that they would be encouraging, they would be motivating, there'd be times where we, we get excited about what you've called us to do. And we go out from here, encouraged as brothers and sisters in Christ to take up this charge and do your will in your power. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.